Let's open up to Hebrews chapter 8. That's where we are at in our Hebrews series this morning. Hebrews chapter 8. Let's read together. It says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, and the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them. On their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice this morning in this wonderful news that Jesus Christ, whom came as a man, and bore our sins on the cross, ascended into the holy places with the offering of himself. And he now mediates a covenant that gives us promises, promises of mercy, promises of full forgiveness for our sins, and promises that you will put your laws in our minds and write them in our hearts. 
And so, Lord, we come to you this morning and we pray that that would be exactly what you're doing. That you would be putting your laws in our minds right now with your word by your spirit. That you would be writing in our hearts your laws. Father, use your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we come to our text this morning on Hebrews chapter 8, we want to uh, once again be reminded that the theme of this whole epistle is the absolute sufficiency and superiority of Jesus Christ. You see, the whole point of the letter is to tell this Hebrew congregation that they can put everything on Jesus Christ. They can put all their confidence in him, all their hope in him, all their trust in him, and drop entirely all of the old features of Judaism. For Christ is superior and he is sufficient. And that is the message of this book. That they do not need a combination of both the old and the new. That they would dare not hang on strictly to the old, but that they would come to Christ, who is everything they need. And we have studied some comparisons in the book of Hebrews. And some of the comparisons that we've seen is that the writer is telling us that Jesus Christ is a better message. That he is, a better, that he is better than angels. That he is better than Moses. That he is better than Joshua. And last week we saw that he is better than Aaron. And this letter is showing them that Christ is superior to all those connected with the old covenant. Now for us as 21st century believers, Gentile believers by the way, it can be so difficult to understand the significance of the message that this audience is receiving. So I want us to go back, okay, in our minds I want us to go back to first century, and in our imagination, we want to try to understand how radical this message is to the original audience. So, please help, help me out, and let's imagine together, okay? Imagine growing up as a first century Hebrew Jew. Imagine as a child being taught and indoctrinated in the law of Yahweh. For years, being reminded that your forefathers stood on the skirt of Mount Sinai 40 days after the parting of the Red Sea and watched and heard the trembling and the fire upon the mountain as God delivered his law to them and made covenant with them. Imagine year after year making the journey to the city of Jerusalem, to bring in your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sin sacrifices to the temple. Imagine, guys. Imagine the awe-inspiring structure of the temple. It was one of the largest buildings in the first century. Imagine beholding the, the, the grandeur of this structure and seeing the reverence of the Levitical priesthood ministering in the temple day after day with their beautiful garments. 
Imagine the fear-inducing smell of burning flesh coming from the altar and then watching the high priest enter the holy place trembling at the possibility of seeing his corpse pulled out by a rope tied to his leg. Imagine rejoicing with all the people in, 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 in the acceptance of the blood offering for the atonement of your sins. And then, after years of your confidence being placed on these shadows, Christ appears. And your heart is drawn to the message of complete salvation that he offers. And as you convert from the Judaism you grew up with into a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are thrown out of your Jewish community. And your parents and friends disown you. Your home is taken away. And you are forced into a life of persecution and suffering. My friends, just imagine this small congregation of Hebrew believers gathered together in in a hiding place, probably in the living room of one of their brethren, discouraged, burdened, contemplating the insults of their persecutors with the burdens of sin in their hearts. Thinking probably, what are we doing here? Maybe mom and dad are right What confidence can we really have of the forgiveness of our sins? Look at us. All we have is this empty room at discouraged morale and sinful hearts. Where is our beautiful temple? Where are the stench of dead animals and the aroma of the incense? Where is our great high priest dressed in his beautiful garments? Where are the blood sacrifices that provide forgiveness of sin? Did we make a mistake? Trusting Jesus? How can we be confident? How can we be secure? While the Levitical high priest is offering a sacrifice in the holy temple for the forgiveness of the sin of the people, we sit here in this room discouraged and burdened. Is it possible for us to be confident and secure of Christ's work on our behalf when we ourselves are so unfaithful. Church, this is the question this audience is struggling with and the question that will drive our text this morning. It was an important question for the author to address to this Hebrew congregation and it is an important question for God to address to our congregation this morning. Is it possible for us to be confident and secure of Christ's work on our behalf when we ourselves are so unfaithful. My friends, all of us, in one way or another, struggle with this very question. In our DNA, we are no different than the people in the living room. We believe that Christ is our great high priest, yet this truth is not sufficient for us. God wants us to enter confidently into the throne of grace, yet we fail to do so because we base our confidence on the things we see rather than on the truth we don't see. For some of us, this may look like placing our confidence on religious systems and rituals. For others, we base our confidence on our performance. 
And so we look at Christ and we see a great high priest, but then we look at ourselves and we see unfaithful covenant breakers. And so our confidence fails. And we sit in the living room of our hearts, discouraged and burdened by our sin, looking for things to add to the work of Christ. But God wants to communicate to us this morning through this Hebrew writer that we can walk confident. We can walk secure in the priestly work of Christ, not because of our faithfulness, but because of God's. In God's faithfulness. We have a better priest. That's point number one of our message. And in God's faithfulness, we have received better promises. That's point number two. And these two points that our text wants to present to us, these are the points that will strengthen our confidence in the midst of our own faithfulness. So let's begin with the first point. We can be confident because we have a better priest. Let's read verse 1. It says, Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. Now, the author of the letter has labored for three chapters concerning the priesthood of Jesus. And we have learned throughout this Hebrew series that the whole key of the Messiah covenant was the Levitical priesthood. This was the agency appointed by the law, as we saw in chapter 7, verse 28 last week, appointed by the law to bring man to God and God together. You see, the Levitical priesthood was the key to the people being able to relate to God through the law. And so if there was, uh, was going to be a way in which man could relate to God in a better way than the Mosaic law, there wouldn't be a need for this better covenant to appoint a better high priest. And so the writer labors this point to render the fact that Jesus is the superior priest. And so after talking for three chapters and with three more chapters left to strengthen his point, he makes this summarizing statement. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. Literally, the author is saying the main point, the chief point to what has been said and also to what is going to be said in the next three chapters is this. Pay close attention. Pay close attention. If there is anything I want you to learn through this letter is this. We have such a high priest. I can almost picture this author with tears in his eyes thinking of all the ways his audience is suffering. Thinking of all their struggles and all their temptations. He is probably thinking, my brothers, I know with your physical eyes, all you see is the external realities of the old system. And all you see is the weight of your sin that tempts you to go back to that. But I want to tell you and I want you to know that we have such a high priest. And this is the climax of this whole book. Church, brothers, sisters, I want you to learn. I want you to know that we have such a high priest. We have received a priest that is more excellent than any other. And this statement makes this verse pertinent to you and me. You see, the Jewish Christians did not understand this truth as well as they should 
they were looking to go back to the earthly system that, that had a high priest who was physically present. And we are no different many times when we are tempted to direct our worship through something we can see and we can touch. Just think of the, the wonder of the Hebrews as they read this section when they received this letter. All their lives, they had generation after generation trusted in these priests. They had been instructed from early childhood to regard with reverence the Levitical system and the Levitical priesthood. There was nothing higher to them in their minds except God himself. But here comes the word of God to them and says, listen, we've got a high priest to turn to now who surpasses all the others. We have such a high priest. Let's look at verse 1 again. He says, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, to us, this might not mean much at first glance, but what this text is telling us is that this is the highest proof of his superiority, is that he's sitting down. He's seated. Our high priest is not standing like all the, earth, all, all the other earthly priests. He is seated. And what this speaks of, guys, is that in Christ, we have a better high priest, one with a better sacrifice. And this is the apex of this book and the chief point that he is trying to make. In Jesus Christ, we have a better high priest because he has offered a better sacrifice, one that needs no repetition. You see, the Levitical priests never sat down. And I want you to listen to this. In Hebrews 10, 11, we'll get to it in about a few weeks. It says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But our better high priest, guys, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin, forever sat down. You see, the thing is, no priest ever finished his work. He could never sit down. The job was never done. He just kept offering more and more sacrifices because the sacrifice you offered today was only as good as the time you, you, it took you to commit the next sin. And it just kept going and going and going. And no priest ever sat down. But it's, Christ is seated. And not only is he seated, but he is seated in the heavenly throne. And this is so significant for us to understand. When the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, there was no seat for him to sit in. In fact, the only seat in the temple was the mercy seat. And that was placed on the Ark of the Covenant to represent the throne of God. It was the place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. And so no priest ever sat down. But Jesus came along, offered one sacrifice, and said, It is finished. And sat down. Now that is the same. That is, that is the type of priest that we have. An awesome priest. That is accomplishing what the entire Levitical system never could accomplish. And that's why the writer says, and this is the chief point, the key. He sat down. So guys, we can be confident because we have a great priest. 
high priest who offered a better sacrifice. He offered himself. And today he sits in the majestic throne of the Most High at the place of power and authority. But we also read in verse 2 that our high priest ministers in a better sanctuary. Let's read it again. It says, verse 2, A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. You see, this author wants to remind them that as awe-inspiring as the earthly temple may seem, their great high priest, Jesus Christ, is a minister in a better sanctuary. A sanctuary not made of humans' hands, but set up by the Lord himself. What he is saying is that, that the temple, you see the temple over there? In all its glory, in all its grandeur, it is still a shadow of the real thing. That's what he means by the true tent. It's not that the temple was false, but it was, that, it was a shadow. It was temporary. And he is saying to them, you see the temple and the altar and the priests and the sacrifices? They are all shadows. They look real, they have, but they have no substance within themselves. They are merely shadows of the real thing, which is in the heavens where Christ is a minister. My friends, Christ is a minister in the holy places. He is not just sitting on his throne, idle with nothing to do. But check out verse 3 with me. It says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Okay, okay, hold on. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute. He just told us that Christ is seated. And in the next chapter, he will tell us once again that Christ, after offering himself, sat down. So if his sacrifice is complete, how is then he then a minister still? And this is what the writer is saying. He is saying every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that Christ do it as well. Now we all know that he offered the sacrifice of himself, but notice the term gifts. And let's go back to chapter 5, verse 1. As we read this, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To do what? To offer gifts and sacrifices. And the gifts idea simply divides sacrifices into two kinds, into the two kinds that we see in Scripture. There were two kinds of sacrifices. The first kind of sacrifice was the meal offering. It was a, thank, a thanksgiving offering. And there was no bloodshed in that sacrifice. The other kind were the sacrifices of blood. And that's the distinction that the writer is making here. He is simply saying every priest is involved in both kinds of offerings. Bloodless meal offerings, gifts, and blood offerings, sacrifices for sin. So Jesus, is he, if he is a true high priest, he will do both of these. And so what the author is saying is, listen guys, Jesus is in the real holies. Not in the shadows of the earthly temple. And he has offered his own blood as a sacrifice for your sins and the atoning work that brings complete forgiveness has been completed once for all. 
But Christ now, right now, at this very hour, is still offering gifts to God on your behalf. And in the Old Testament, all the meal offerings had to do with thanksgiving and dedication. So when a man brought a meal offering, he was thanking God and dedicating his life to God. It was an act of dedication, not, not atoning for his sin. It was personal dedicational, personal commitment to God. That was the gift offering. And so we see that Jesus, even now, is continuing to do this for, you know what? None of us can praise God can dedicate ourselves to God, can truly worship God or truly thank God unless we do it through whom? Jesus Christ. We always come to God by Him, don't we? And so in a sense, Christ continues even now to minister gifts to God. In fact, Paul in Romans 12, 1 says this appeal, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are not able to do this, my friends, apart from Christ. Christ is a minister in the holy places. And as we bring the thanks and the praise and the worship of our hearts and the dedication of our lives to present them to God, Christ takes those gifts of our thanks, praise, worship, and dedication, and He offers them on to God on our behalf. He mediates for us. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. My friends, this is amazing. The fact that Jesus Christ, in all His glory, in all His magnitude, in all His exaltation in heaven, is still preoccupied with ministering to us and on our behalf. Unbelievable. He is always serving. He condescends even in His glory now on the throne of God to stand up and minister on your behalf for your needs. Friends, earthly temples can't do this. Priests, pastors, and religious systems can't do this. The Pope can't do it. Muhammad can't do it. Buddha can't do it. Confucius can't do it. Krishna can't do it. There is only one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus. That is our confidence and security in the midst of our sin and unfaithfulness. We have a better high priest, one who who is superior and transcendent, not just in his person, but also in his ministry. And he is so superior. This is how superior he is, okay? Let's read verses 4 through 6. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. His, His ministry is better, my friends. 
What the author is telling them in these verses is not only is Jesus superior because of the better sacrifice in a better sanctuary, but his whole ministry is better. In fact, it is so superior that if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all according to the law. Let me illustrate this for you, okay? Imagine your child brings home an outline of himself that he cut out of construction paper. And it's a wonderful outline. I mean, he, he, he did a wonderful job. I mean, his, his little head, you see his hair. On the outline, you see the, 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 the shape of his nose, and you see his mouth. And I mean, it's a, it's a great outline of himself. And you liked it so much that you hung it on a wall and rejected your real child in favor of the outline. Now, you're probably thinking, that would be ridiculous, right? Well, that is exactly what the author is saying. Why would Jesus minister on earth according to the law and the old covenant when these were just but a construction paper outline of the heavenly things? That would be ridiculous. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. Christ goes beyond the worship system of the Jews by obtaining a more excellent ministry. And how does he obtain it? Because he's the mediator of a better covenant. And why is it a better covenant? Because it's enacted on better promises. The author is saying to this Hebrew congregation, why are you all so cut up on the old covenant? Why are you so cut up on its mediators and its promises when Christ is the mediator of a better covenant built on better promises? Well, what are these promises? And that brings us to point number two in our sermon we have better we have received better promises and the first thing we're going to see is the promised covenant let's look at the promised covenant the first promise we see in verse 8 look with me it says behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will establish a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah You see, the very first thing that the author wants for us to know is that God had made a promise to make a new covenant. But his Hebrew audience is struggling to understand this. And their question becomes, why is God promising a new covenant? Well, the author tells us in verse 7 that if there had been no fault with the first covenant, then there would be no need for a second. But what we see in the beginning statement of verse 8 is that the reason for this promise is that God has found fault with them. Who are them? Well, let's read verse 9, okay, and find out. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. What this author is doing is he's saying, guys, listen, I didn't make up all this new covenant stuff, but the Lord himself... A thousand years after establishing the Mosaic Covenant, spoke to our prophet Jeremiah and gave him this promise. And this promise is the very covenant that Christ has inaugurated with his blood in the holy places. There is no use for the Levitical priesthood. There is no use for animal sacrifices. There is no use for temples any longer. For God has inaugurated in Christ a better agreement, a better covenant, a better way of relating with man. And this Hebrew pastor wants them to understand 
that the better promises build a better covenant relationship between God and us. And this relationship is what Christ obtained and takes care of as a mediator. So let's look at these promises. Let's look at the promises in the covenants. What are they? Well, we already saw in verses 7 and 8 that the new covenant itself was a promise because the old covenant was a faulty covenant. So in this, in this old agreement with the people of Israel, God had promised to be their God, and they had promised to be his people living according to his law. But we read in verse 9 that they were not able to continue in his covenant because of their hardness of hearts and disobedience. So the faultiness of the first covenant, the Messiah law, was not that God had given them bad commandments. It was that the peoples had bad hearts. So it wouldn't work if God simply took away the shadows. It wouldn't work if God even set Christ before us as the great reality and left us to ourselves to know him and to love him. If that's all that God did, then the outcome would be no different for us than that of the people of Israel. Our worship and our lives would not become radically, spiritually, and internal without the work of God. But on the contrary, we would just be like them. So if God is going to take away the shadows of the external, okay, and relate with us in better terms, then he is going to have to do something powerful and dramatic in us. So what did God do? Well, let's, let's read these promises, okay? Verses 10 through 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the throne of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. As you can see, in this better covenant, God has promised Everything we need. The first thing God promises in the new covenant is the obedience of his covenant people. We receive promised obedience. This is what we are told here. In the old covenant, everything was external. The law was written on stone. In the new covenant, the law is written in our hearts. In the old covenant, do you know, do you know why the people obeyed? This is why they, were, they obeyed sometimes. Because they were afraid. That's why. Fear of punishment. But in the new covenant, why do we obey? Because we have love and that fulfills the whole law. Under the old covenant, God's laws were upon the lips of the people and written in stones and doorposts. In the new covenant, they are in our minds and written in our hearts. What a difference. In the new covenant... Worship is internal, not external. It's real. It's not ritual. Israel had memorized God's word. Israel had pledged to obey, but they never had the internal power to live up to their pledge. And neither would we apart from Christ. In the new covenant, we have the power to obey. 
This is the wonderful promise. We can walk confident and secure in the priestly work of Jesus Christ because God has enabled us to live according to his covenant. Now, this doesn't mean that we are perfect. But it means that God in Christ is working to transform us and fashion us according to his law. Let me illustrate this for you, okay? Many times I come across people who tell me, I could never live the way you do. And in fact, I think that there are youth here this morning that are saying these very same words in their hearts. They look at Christ, they look at their parents and others in the church, and in the depths of their hearts, they say, man, I want to believe in the forgiveness of sin in Christ. But I could never be devoted as my mom is or as my dad is. I want to tell you this this morning. That is a lie. Christ is not asking you to change prior to trusting him. He is asking you to trust him in order that he would change you. So I tell you folks, that, I, I tell these folks that tell me this, I tell them, you know what? I can't live my life either. The only reason I do what I do is because Christ has enabled me to. There is nothing special about Jose Prado outside of Christ. In fact, a few days ago, I, re I received a phone call from an old friend who laughed on the phone for half an hour saying, I can't believe you're a pastor. And church, I can't believe it either. In my rebellion, God found me. And because of Christ's mediation on my behalf, he put his laws in my mind. And he wrote them on my heart. And this is what he promises us. He promises that he will enable us to live for him. He also promises us intimacy with him. Promise intimacy. Let's read the end of uh, verse 10 and 11. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Here God promises to be intimate with all of those who are a part of his covenant. The Israelites knew much about God, but only those who are in Christ are able to know God. You see, in a, in, a, in a transcendent sense, God is God to every man that lives. Every man lavishes on God's manifestations of his divine common grace that sustains his life. But there is also a tender, truer relationship of heart to heart, spirit to spirit, that is true in a deeper, more soul-satisfying way than, than those on the outside of Christ can imagine. Church, I will be there. God means that God gives himself to us. And they will be my people means that he takes us to himself. 
in Christ, God enables us to know him deeply. No longer do we just hear of God and memorize some truth about God, but we can be one with God and, and truly know God. And this promise is for all of us. Young, old, male, female, Israel, Gentile, whether you grew up on the streets or in the palace, it doesn't matter your financial status. It doesn't matter your intelligence. It doesn't matter your race. In Christ, we will all know the living God. And these are the promises that we received. And all of these promises are based on God's promise of mercy. Verse 12 says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The greatest feature, my friends, of the new covenant is total forgiveness of sin. In Christ, we have received mercy like no other. In Christ, God promises to forgive us of our sins, and he promises us to never bring them up against us. My friends, this is an amazing promise because if there is something that we are good at, it is sinning. We are professional sinners. From the moment we woke up this morning to the time we walked into church this morning, our sins were too many for us to count. Yet God, in his infinite mercy, because of our great high priest, who is at the very moment, right now, right now, as we sit here at this very moment in the holy places, interceding for you and for me, has forgiven us even of the sins we aren't even aware of. And he will never let me say that again. He will never bring a charge against our sin. Your lies. Your anger, your lust, your adultery, your stealing, your cheating, your moments of discouragement, your moments of unbelief, all your sins, every single one of them, our Lord and Savior bore on his body so that you and I would never have to pay for them. So, is it possible? For us to be confident and secure of Christ's work on our behalf when we ourselves are so unfaithful. Not only is it possible, but also it is God's very desire for us. It has been God's heart for us from before the foundations of the earth. And His perfect will is fulfilled in Christ. Christ is not just a great high priest, but he is the great high priest who mediates God's excellent promises. God in Christ has taken upon himself to promise us redemption through a new covenant, a new endless covenant, regardless of our faithfulness. God in Christ has promised to sanctify us by placing his law in our minds and in our hearts. God in Christ has promised us to be ours and to make us his and this is the reason why we can be secure and the reason why we can enter confident before his throne of grace. Because the better covenant depends not on the faithfulness of man, but on the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. So, 
Let us pray. Father, we are constantly amazed at your infinite grace and mercies towards us. How can it be that such a vile sinner like myself would have your laws in my mind and in my heart? How can it be that I could be known and that I could know the living holy God? How can it be that you would forgive my sins and that you would remember them no more? Father, it is amazing. Thank you for this covenant. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we wouldn't be able to have these promises. And so, Father, I thank you and I pray that you, even right now, would be doing what you promised to do. That you would be putting your laws in minds right now. That you would be writing them right now in hearts. And that you, right now, would be forgiving sins and remembering them no longer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.